the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. I mean, these are tough times. And for those of you, you know, new to the show, you know, welcome. The show is in two parts. First part, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning and elder law is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, obviously, the way we're doing business has changed over the last couple of weeks. In fact, I was just talking to somebody today, you know, uh, on the weekend of, I think, February 14th or so, I mean, March 14th, everything was normal. And then all of a sudden, New York City, the world changed dramatically within a couple of days. But one of the things that we are able to do now, which we weren't able to do in the really, I think, just about a week ago, we're able to sign wills through remotely through the Internet Skype Zoom. So basically the way it works is you get a draft of your will. We mail it to you. You open it up, make sure it's what you want. And, you know, then we have the witnesses on to, let's say, Zoom, which I don't know how to do it, but there are other people in the office here who can do it. Why being one of them. Okay, so we we see you actually sign, and then you get us back the signature page, and we witness the, the signature to the will. And it's not that complicated. It's pretty much like signing a will, except instead of being across the desk from each other, we're across the... We're seeing each other in the camera. We're seeing you sign. You're seeing us, you know, react to your signing. So, it, you know, we can do a trust like that, a, a, a trust we've been able to do like that. We've signed a couple of trusts remotely through the through the web, so to speak. But now we're able to do wills. So if, you know, you're in a position, hey, I want to do that will, but I don't want to come into the office because I'm a little afraid of, of traveling and, and so forth and so on. Well, you can give us a call, and, and we can tell you how to arrange it. You tell us what you want in your wills. We'll send you out to draft. Then, assuming the draft is okay, then we'll make arrangements to see you witness, you know, on the computer. And, and if you have any questions about that, give us a call at, at, at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. And, you know, I, I'm, 
I miss seeing clients day to day. I really do. And it's one of the, you know, one of the tough parts about staying in business right now. There's, there's a lack of client contact. It's all over the phone, over the Internet. Occasionally we do some clients. We see some clients in emergency situations or whatever. But again, if you say, hey, I want to do that will, you never know what's going to happen in today's world. I can't come to the office. Well, we can arrange that for you. Give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Now, you know, and the other thing is, too, if you own a house, ordinarily you want the house to be put into a trust. A trust agreement is a family contract. It's your house as long as you're alive. After you're gone, it passes the next generation, usually tax-free. What do I mean by usually tax-free? Well, basically, if you're solidly under $6 million, we can get your house out tax-free. Now, if, if you're married, we can get almost $12 million out tax-free between husband and wife. So 90% of the people, 95% of the people, we can probably get your property out tax-free. So let's say if you have a house that's worth $900,000 and you got a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank, what I would like to do put that house in trust, avoid probate, get it out tax-free, and try to protect it from medical bills. And, and by the way, you know, you kept hearing me in the past saying, well, if you wanted to apply for home care Medicaid, community Medicaid in New York, you could put your house in a trust today and apply for home care Medicaid next month. You can still do that, but in October, October of this year, so roughly five months from now, there's going to be a 30-month look-back period. So if you have a relative that you're thinking about applying for home care Medicaid, you want to do it now. You don't want to do it on September 30th because maybe the application might not go in or it might get rejected. On October 1st, there's a 30-month look-back period. So if, you're, if you, know, you do certain transactions, you make a gift, you're going to have a 30-month look-back period after October 1st. So if, if you're thinking about home care Medicaid, you've been on the fence with your parent, you know, maybe you're paying privately right now, and you think, well, when when my mother gets a little bit lower in her funds and her money, then we'll apply for Medicaid. Well, you may want to apply now, get her in the system before October 1st, and I can't stress that enough. And, you know, it's a little harder to apply right now. Sometimes we don't even know where to send the applications. We'll send it by fax. We'll send it by email. But I assume that's going to get straight. Now, the second part of the show, which all of you know who listen to the show regularly, you know, we talk about history, politics, religion, sometimes baseball or football with old New York players. And my wife decided that it would be better to go back in a little bit of nostalgia, good feel for time. We decided to bring back an interview we did a little while ago with Carl Erskine. Hooray, hooray. Now, Carl Erskine was a, a pitcher from the Dodgers from 1948, I think, till 1959. It means he played both in Brooklyn and L.A. He was one of the heroes of the um, 1953 World Series. He struck out 14 Yankees in one game, which was a, a record until Sandy Koufax broke it in, I think, 1963. But Carlos Kuhn is a great guy, lived in Brooklyn for a lot of those years, originally from Indiana, and he's 93 years old right now. Hopefully he's doing well. But here's our interview from a while back with Carl Erskine. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's top-rated lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. 
Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. As a lot of you know out there, we do our taping broadcasting from Fifth Avenue in Bayridge, Brooklyn. So we have this affinity for old Brooklyn Dodgers and over the years, we brought a few back, but we're very pleased today to have one of the mainstays of the Brooklyn Dodgers in the, in the late 40s into the 50s. In fact, he stayed with the Dodgers a little bit when they went to Los Angeles, but one of the heroes of the 1953 World Series, Carl Erskine. Welcome to the show, Carl. Hey there. You know, what's wonderful is to hear not only from Brooklyn, but Bay Ridge. <laughs> Why Bay Ridge? Where I lived for a few years, you bet. So what do you remember about Bay Ridge? Well, Betty and I were from Anderson, Indiana, which... It's a small community in the middle of uh, Indiana, and coming to Brooklyn, the big city, uh, was overwhelming. But once we got settled into Bay Ridge, uh, it was like a small town. We we knew the we knew the barber and the and the uh, uh, where the butcher was and the bakery and the deli was all <laughs> right there. And uh, so quickly, we felt re- really at home in Brooklyn. In Bay Ridge. Let's go back a little bit in time. You were in the service during World War II. How did you get involved in professional baseball? Well, when I graduated from high school, I'd uh, been scouted by several scouts during my junior and senior year. But as soon as I graduated uh, in 1945, I got drafted into the Navy uh, because the war was hot in the South Pacific. And um, I had a brother in the South Pacific. Uh, we didn't know where he was, actually. But um, so I, I got my uh, boot training in upstate New York because uh, Great Lakes Naval St- uh, Station was uh, quarantined for some something, scarlet fever, I think it was. So I went to a temporary war, uh, war uh, time uh, training center on the Great Lakes, uh, and uh, I think it was Lake Geneva. That's where I got my boot training in the Navy. And then I was scheduled to uh, go out on a carrier, and about a week before we were leave on the carrier, the bombs were dropped in Japan. And immediately, everybody's orders uh, were halted, and uh, stay where you are, stay where you are. And then eventually that led me to be uh, sent to uh, Boston uh, Navy Yard. And uh, I spent the rest of my uh, Navy career in, in the Boston Navy Yard. Now, how'd you get into baseball? The Branch Rickey was the general manager of the Dodgers back then, right? Right. Yeah, here's a, here's a quick story. Uh, they scouted me in high school. And when I uh, before I got uh, drafted in the Navy, uh, when I was a senior, the Dodgers invited me to come to Ebbets Field and work out, and uh, I got to do that. And I spent a week in New York, uh, and they showed me this big city and 
I worked out every day with the Dodgers, and that put the hook in me. I, I didn't want to play for anybody else after that. But then I had to go in the Navy. So a couple years later, in uh, uh, this would have been in – I was still in the Navy, as a matter of fact. And Mr. Ricky came to the All-Star Game in 1946, was in Boston. And he invited my parents to come to the All-Star Game. And we met in the Kenmore Hotel the night before the 46 All-Star Game, uh, my dad, mother, and me with Mr. Ricky. And he signed me uh, that night uh, to my first contract. Uh, I, I was discharged a couple weeks later, and I went out and played a very short uh, season uh, in the minors, uh, Danville, Illinois, uh, because the scene was almost over by the time I got out of the Navy. So after I got home, uh, the commissioner of baseball called me, and he said, uh, son, I want you and your father to come to my office in Cincinnati uh, next Tuesday at 10 o'clock. So my dad laid off work, and we went to Cincinnati not knowing anything about what might happen here. And the commissioner said, son, uh, the Dodgers violated a directive they signed you before you were out of the military, and uh, that was uh, that was a wrongful act on part of the Dodgers. So I'm going to declare you a free agent. Now, Mr. Ricky had given me a $3,500 bonus, and so he was on the phone asking uh, the commissioner, "What about what about the bonus?" And uh, the commissioner told him, "That's up to the boy. Whatever he thinks is fair." Anyway. After that, I talked to Mr. Ricky, and I said, I, I do want to re-sign. They didn't, they didn't bar the Dodgers from re-signing me, but they said, you can sign with anybody. Uh, but I wanted to play for the Dodgers, so I told Mr. Ricky, if you give me another $5,000, I'll sign with the Dodgers. So he gave me a, uh, two bonuses, <laughs> and Mr. Ricky was known to be tight with the money, but... Uh, when I told Dizzy Dean, who was a broadcaster, after I pitched a no-hitter against the Giants, he had me on the air, and he said, who signed you? And I said, Branch Rickey. He said, he's the cheapest man ever lived. And I said, well, he gave me two bonuses. <laughs> so uh, he turned to the uh, he turned to the uh, camera, and he said, now this, this boy right here deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, not because... Uh, not because he uh, pitched no two no hitters, he got two bonuses from Branch Rickey. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I went down in the history book as getting two bonuses from Mr. Rickey, but it helped me to play for one of the world. And uh, boy, was I fortunate! It turned out that way. Some of the younger people, by younger, people under you know fifty or sixty, may not even remember one that was a team in Brooklyn. And number two, the Brooklyn Dodgers of the late forties and early fifties, they were almost in every pennant race. And I know you had a couple of heartbreaks there in uh, fifty and fifty one. Oh yeah, one of the most bitter experiences of my career was to lose in nineteen fifty one. We had a thirteen and a half game lead in August, and one of the great teams too, and. Uh, they, the Giants began to catch us and finally tied us at the end of the season. And the National League had a rule if uh, teams tied, there would be a playoff of two out of three. Now, 
so we got tied at the end of the season, and the playoffs uh, started in Brooklyn. Uh, our manager, on the flip of the coin, could decide to play the first game on the road and the next two games at home. But he decided to play the first game at home, and we got beat by the Giants, I think, two or three to one. And then the next two games are going to be in the polar grounds. And um, Clint Levine set the Giants out for the second game. Now the third game was for the pennant, for the whole, all the wax. And that's the game that Bobby Thompson hit the shot, heard around the world, and beat us. And it was a bitter pill. My goodness, how could we uh, upset our fans again, not bring home the pennant after having that kind of a lead? But that's what happened. And uh, the amazing thing about that team, uh, we could have really collapsed after uh, a bitter pill to swallow. But after the 51 season, 52, we won the pennant. 53, we won it. 55, we won the pennant and the series. 56, again, we won the pennant. So uh, that team was so good uh, that, that even that bitter pill uh, didn't shut them down to have a great run after that. Now, when Bobby Thompson hit the home run off Ralph Branca, where were you? I was in the bullpen. I'd been throwing alongside of Branca, and when the phone call came uh, to the bullpen from Charlie Dressen, our coach, Clyde Sukaforth, answered the phone, and Dressen must have asked him if we were ready, and I heard him say, they're both ready. And Henry must have asked him, uh, who's throwing the best? So Sukaforth said, uh, they both had good stuff, but Erskine's bouncing his curveball. Uh, Dresden said, let me have Branca. <laughs> well, tongue-in-cheek, I've said that was probably my best pitch in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, we need to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're talking to former Dodger great Carl Erskine. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500 or visit their website connorsandsullivan.com Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. We're in the Connors Corner segment of our show. We're talking to Carl Erskine, a pitcher who won 120 games for the Brooklyn Dodgers, once struck out 14 Yankees in a World Series game, pitched two no-hitters in his major league career, and was sharing memories with Carl Erskine. Now, in 1953, you had a pretty good game in the World Series. Can you tell us about that? Well, I was 20-6 uh, and six that year and led the league in uh, percentage and so I was scheduled to open the 53 World Series in Yankee Stadium. 
So I was fine. I had no problem. I was, uh, I'd had a lot of arm trouble, but at that time my arm felt felt good. I was throwing well, and um, so I started the game, and lo and behold, I was a little wild the first inning, and I think Billy Martin tripled <laughs> off of me in the first inning and knocked me out before I ever got a chance to pitch the game. So um, Dresden took me out, but he said to me, uh, you didn't throw a lot of pitches, so I'm going to start you again in the third game. There's no travel day in New York with the two teams, uh, both game. Now, we'd already lost the first game and the second game in Yankee Stadium. So Duke Snyder was my roommate, and I told Duke when I went out to warm up, I said, Duke, you know, I was supposed to get three starts in this game, this series, and I've already blown one of them. I got a pitch like there's no tomorrow today and try to get us back in this series. So that day I did have extra determination. I don't think I ever felt more determined in, uh, to uh, kind of come back from a defeat and I've often told kids a defeat can be a great motivator. If it's so bitter, you don't want it to happen again. So I started pitching that game. It was a tight game. Uh, it went one-to-one and uh, two-to-two late in the game. But I had good stuff, and Campy, uh, he'd move his glove. I'd hit it. Uh, I had a good curveball that day. I didn't know how many strikeouts I had, but in the ninth inning, uh, struck out Bullwig, and then they sent it big Johnny Mize. He was my nemesis. He'd hit a couple of home runs off of me earlier in the uh, seasons before. But I was fortunate to have a good a good curveball and kept it in the right place. I struck Mize out. I didn't hear the announcement about the record. Uh, Joe Collins was the next hitter, and he grounded out to me to end the game. So I went in the clubhouse, and Preacher Rowe, one of our pitchers, came over to me and said, Carl, he parted the writers were all around my locker. He parted the writers and said, Carl, do you realize you set a record today of 14 strikeouts? I said, you know, Preacher, I never knew how many strikeouts I had. But uh, but I did have that many, and boy, what a overwhelming thrill to own a record in the World Series. That, that was so beyond my expectation in my career. But uh, I just had good stuff that day, and uh, and, and it was on uh, October 2nd in 1953. Ten years later, October 2nd, 1963, I sat in the stands at uh, Yankee Stadium and watched Koufax strike out 15. So... So I had the record exactly 10 years. <laughs> well, it's still a great record to have. Let, let me ask you, what was it like playing in the World Series back then, Yankees-Dodgers? You know, the World Series was an atmosphere that was really up there. People dressed. It was like the Easter parade at the World Series. Women dressed in furs. Women dressed up in hats. Men, t- shirts, shirts and ties. Uh, suits. It was it was really a classy uh, experience in the World Series in those days. And playing a World Series in Brooklyn, there was no travel day between uh, the Yankees and the, the Dodgers. And we had such a strong team, uh, offense and defense. 
uh, we probably didn't have as deep a pitching staff as the Yankees maybe had, but we never went into a World Series feeling like we were the underdogs. We always felt like it was going to be uh, our, our day to win. And then for some strange reason, like it happens in sports, took us took us forever to finally beat the Yankees in a four out of seven World Series. But that happened in 55, of course. And I'll tell you what, Brooklyn was always kind of a second-class citizen in baseball. Uh, the, the big Yankees and the, and the strong Giants in the same city. Uh, but that 55 series, that elevated the Dodgers into having a classy team with real respect. And uh, so I was extremely fortunate to be, be on that team. What did it feel like for you as a player when the team moved to Los Angeles? Well, it was mixed. Uh, it was a mixed bag. Uh, those of us who had had our best years in Brooklyn, I came up in '48. I think I won 118 games in Brooklyn, and I had some of my best days at Evans Field. And moving west, I was at the end, toward the end of my career, as was Pee Wee, Duke. Gil Hodges, of course, Campy had been injured that winter. He was now uh, paralyzed from his neck down from an auto injury. So, and Jackie had already retired at the end of the '56 season. So, in '58, when we moved to uh, Los Angeles, uh, the two guys that loved the, the move, or maybe three was Koufax, who was a rookie in 55, and Drysdale, who came to us in 56. Those two players were, their best years were yet to come. And young Johnny Padres, who was uh, the, the hero in the in the 55 series, winning two games. Uh, they all three were more or less at the beginning of a, a real outstanding Hall of Fame career. The rest of us, we were like, uh, these people don't know who they, who we are. We got to prove it all over again. So it was a tough move for the what you would call the boys of summer. Is there one memory? Let's say, forget the World Series or anything else that you want to. Uh, one story you can tell us about pitching in Brooklyn or your teammates or or anything else. Well, of course, like I said Brooklyn got to be a very close knitted. Uh, neighborhood and if I'd pitch a good ball game uh, in Brooklyn I come out to Lafayette Walk which I remember was between 3rd and 4th Avenue in Brooklyn in Bay Ridge um, lived at Lafayette Walk when I come home after the ball game normally a day game uh, the neighborhood would decorate the trees with balloons and whatever uh, they make a big celebration, have a street dance, <laughs> uh, all that uh, for a win in Brooklyn. So those were those were precious times. Uh, our babysitters uh, came from the neighborhood. Uh, we knew all, knew a lot of the neighbors. I've told a story many times about Abe Myerson. Abe Myerson owned a deli uh, just near near us, just down the block. 
And if I pitch win or lose, he was at my door the next day with two bags of deli groceries. And he'd say, I'd say, Dave, you can't, let me pay you. No, you can't give it. You can't pay. You shouldn't pay anything in Brooklyn. You're one of the Dodgers. <laughs> so that was kind of a close-knit neighborhood we had in, in Bay Ridge. So uh, that was very special. Now, here's one thing I just want to make a comment. You pitched your entire career for the Dodgers, no other organization. That doesn't happen much today. Well, we didn't have free agency in those days. And under the old rules in the contracts called a reserve clause, the team that signed you officially and technically owns you forever. Uh, The only way you could be freed if the club uh, traded you, released you, uh, sold you or something – but we had no individual rights as a player. We were to stay with the same team until they, the, the club, decided to either trade or sell you or release you. So, yes, I was fortunate. I, I don't believe in my 12th season I was ever under the threat even of being traded. And believe me, that's a, a big plus for a family uh, a player who has uh, a wife and children to not have to move to various cities in trades uh, in baseball. And there were a lot of them because the Dodgers had so many players under contract. Uh, Mr. Ricky had the farm system. It was 26 farm teams uh, all the way from the lowest level all the way up through AAA to the majors. And so he had tons of players. And so if you didn't do well, uh, if you didn't, if you weren't productive, uh, you got either sent back to the minors or traded. So there was a lot of movement of guys going and coming. And I was fortunate. I felt like that I never was under the threat of being sold or traded. What did you do after your baseball career was over? I had a couple of offers. Uh, there was baseball exp- expansion was uh, underway, and uh, I had a couple of uh, the Mets. You know, were uh, early '60s when that franchise was developed. So the Mets offered me uh, a pitching coach contract. Uh, actually, the New York Mets were trying to get as many former New York New York players uh, to fill their rosters. And so I was offered a coaching job, and then I was offered the broadcasting job that Kiner, Ralph Kiner, ended up taking that job, and he was there for a long time. Um, <laughs> Forever. Yeah, he was, and uh, Kiner was a class guy. And uh, I used to kid him because he hit a home run or two off of me, and uh, I said, Ralph, please, don't send a cab for me when you come to town. I'll get to the ballpark. You don't have to make sure I get there. But he was a—he was one of my nemesis. But uh, yeah, so those offers uh, were coming fast and furious. Uh, and uh, an agency, ad agency, called me one day and said, uh, "Phillips Van Hughes and this shirt company—they're interested in talking to you about a, a position with them." So I went and checked it out, and uh, they did offer me a real good contract. They were developing, uh, they were a white shirt house, that they were developing a pleasure wear division and asked me if I would come and be trained to head that division and hire other 
retired players of any sport. So Andy Robustelli is a name maybe you don't know, but played for the New York Giants, Giants. football. Yeah. yeah, he was one. Yeah, football Giants. Yeah, and uh, Jerry Coleman of the Yankees was one. Jim Hearn of, of the uh, of the Giants. Giants, New York Giants. Yeah. So that was their concept. So I was I was already started in the training there. They offered me a real good contract. And then my fourth child was born, Jimmy, uh, in April of that year, uh, my first spring out. And Jimmy was Down syndrome. So that was a big shocker. And it really, it really made it difficult to think about pulling up stakes in Anderson, Indiana, where my parents lived and my wife's parents lived. And so I had to tell Phil's friend, Hughes, that I was going to have to opt out of that opportunity because I just couldn't be on the road that much anymore with four kids all under 12 years old and Jimmy being a special child. So we decided to stay in Anderson, Indiana. So I developed an insurance business first. Then a bank came to town and offered me a chance to be on the board. And eventually I went in the bank, went through the chairs over the next 10 or 12 years, and I became president of the bank for the next 11 years. So I ended up <laughs> a banker, which I never expected to, to be, but I did stay right here in my hometown of, of Anderson, Indiana. Carl, again, we need to take a short break. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, tax, Taxes and nursing home costs, so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors and Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718 238 6500. 718 238 6500 or Connors and Sullivan. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer. With me, Mike Connors. We're talking to Dodger pitching great Carl Erskine. Okay, listen, some of us older guys here in New York, especially in Brooklyn, remember the boys this summer. And we thank you for what you brought to the history of Brooklyn. 1955, it's part of history. Can't take it away. And you guys were, you guys did it for us. Well, you know, something happened recently that I'm extremely proud of. And I would like for everybody in Brooklyn to know that I have a great-granddaughter, two years old. My grandson said, uh, Grandpa, I've got two little boys, but if I ever have a girl, I'm going to name her Brooklyn. So I have a granddaughter, great-granddaughter named Brooklyn. And you're, there's a little newspaper in Brooklyn called the uh, – no, 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 it's a Catholic publication. Uh, the Tablet. The Tablet, that's it. Yes. And uh, the writer there – uh, Jim Morini, Morini, um, I got in contact with him. I sent him a picture of me and my great-granddaughter, uh, Brooklyn, and uh, he published it uh, just about the last 
oh, three or four weeks. And I'd love for everybody in Brooklyn to know that I have a great-granddaughter named Brooklyn uh, because that's a, that's a very uh, personal tie with me and the borough. And uh, so I was very, very proud to be a Brooklyn Dodger. Well, Brooklyn fans were very proud to have you as a Dodger. Well, you know, I knew a lot of fans. Uh, playing ten, I played 10 seasons in Brooklyn. I uh, got acquainted with a lot of people because I was a Brooklyn Dodger. Uh, there were a lot of fans that I, in one capacity or another, uh, and I still get lots of mail. I can't believe it. Uh, I'm, I'll be 93 years old in December, so it's many decades ago that I actually got to play in Brooklyn. But uh, those fans write to me, and they some of them don't live in Brooklyn anymore, but they were in Brooklyn at the time I was playing. Uh, I answer all my mail. I, I'm just very de- devoted to the fans that write to me. And uh, so for a skinny kid uh, in Anderson, Indiana, to, to get to play on the big stage uh, – and with the greatest team, I think one of the great teams of all time, my catcher, Campy, I must have pitched uh, 1,500 innings to Roy. Uh, my roommate was Duke Snyder. We became close as brothers. And then Jackie became a close friend. Uh, Pee Wee Reese, a very close friend. Gil Hodges was also from Indiana. Uh, one of the neatest things that I remember about Brooklyn we had an organist named Gladys Gooding, and she was very well known in the music circles in New York. But she would play appropriate songs. Uh, all she used to play a lot of uh, appropriate to whatever the batter did or something. But uh, Gil Hodges from uh, Indiana, Erskine from Indiana. Whenever Hodges hit a home run, or I came in to pitch, she played back home in Indiana. <laughs> That was the most played song other than the national anthem in in the (laughs) 40s and 50s. (laughs) So that was another tie that uh, I had with with Brooklyn. And uh, so we had, uh, like the butcher, Joe Rossi. Uh, I used to to go to New York after my playing days, and I always called Joe Rossi. I said, Joe, could you cut me some more of those Italian... uh, uh, veal cutlets, and uh, he'd meet me to the airport with a 10-pound <laughs> uh, sack all fixed up to carry. And uh, so for years, I had contact with with a lot of uh, people in Brooklyn. Well, you still remembered. A lot of people remember you. Carl, thank you for being on the show. Thank, thank you for sharing your memories. It's really appreciated. And good luck to you. Good luck to your granddaughter, Brooklyn. Well, that's a that's a neat connection for me, and uh, I'll tell you what, I pitched a lot of innings at Evans Field, and uh, that some of them weren't uh, the best I had, <laughs> and you get a boo now and then, but you know what, I had such a close uh, feeling with the fans, because Evans Field was a small ballpark, and you could hear the fans real easy talking to you uh, on the mound, and uh, of course my name uh, of Erskine was corrupted by the Brooklyn Hayes of the Oyskin. But I'd hear the yells from the <laughs> stands, Oysk, hey, Oysk, throw it through his head. <laughs> and this was this was quite a uh, 
uh, quite a culture that was at Evans Field. And most players, most pitchers, hated to come into Evans Field to pitch because it was hardly any foul territory. And uh, the right field was 297. Uh, and so it was a small ballpark. But I, I love to pitch in Brooklyn because our team got a lot of runs at Evans Field. And, and they played great defense as well. But uh, the only thing that, that I ever saw happen that was so remarkable, Stan Musial was one of the great hitters of that era, and he hit in Evans Field. He hit so tremendous that the fans in Evans Field began to cheer uh, the enemy, Musial. <laughs> he was the Cardinals. But uh, the Evans Field fans gave him the name Stan the Man. And uh, but some of our players were a little irritated at the fans because they cheered Musial so much. <laughs> he was our he used to be tough on us. But all in all, uh, I went back to Evans Field in 1960, early 60s. They were getting ready to demolish. They had the wrecking crew in, and they had a big wrecking ball painted white and put red stitches on it like a baseball. And uh, so they had a ceremony. Campy was there in his wheelchair, and Ralph Branca was there, who lived in the New York area. Uh, and uh, me, so the, the three of us, uh, former players, and they had the ceremony, and finally they swung the big wrecking ball over over the visitor's dugout and dropped it. And it crushed the roof of the dugout. And that dugout, we used to look over there, and the, that was the enemy in that dugout. But when they when they dropped that ball, I said, I got to go. I, I've seen enough. And I couldn't stay for the rest of the demo, uh, demolishing. But uh, Evans Field, uh, it still lives. It's still very vivid to a lot of people who uh, visited there. I get letters from kids ten, say, Carl, I was 10 years old. The first game I ever saw was at Evans Field with my dad. And uh, uh, you pitched a uh, no-hitter, and, and here's the scorecard. They'll send me the actual scorecard, and I'll send it back to them and tell them, you got to keep this yourself. <laughs> you and your dad were at it. So uh, just a lot of carryover. I'm amazed at uh, this time of my life that there's still such a connection and a carryover with, with the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, I almost hate to ask this question, but how many guys are still alive from the 1955 Dodgers? Three. You you won't believe this. Uh, Duke Duke Snyder and I used to keep track, looking at the big <laughs> picture of uh, the championship team. Uh, the, the players that are left. We just lost uh, Newcomb not too many months ago. Yeah. Uh, there he was a, made it four, but now living. Roger Craig. Who was a rookie in '55? Yeah. Won he won one of the games uh, of the four in '55. Sandy Koufax, who was a, a rookie in '55, and Erskine. That's the three left, and they're all three pitchers. I don't know what that means, but <laughs> there's just three of us left off of the roster, and that included coaches, manager, uh, trainers, broadcasters, uh, bat boy. They're all gone, except those three. Everybody knows Sandy Koufax, but, you know, I think one of the remarkable things, Roger Craig has been on the show, too. One of the most remarkable things was the number of World Series within, with different teams. Oh, 
Roger Craig. Yeah, be, between being a co- the Cardinals in 64, being a coach for the Tigers, a uh, manager for the Giants or whatever. Yeah. Well, Roger was a real baseball mind. And, you know, he was responsible for a lot of pitchers. Uh, he was a, a great pitching coach. Uh, he'd been a pitcher. There was a time, believe it or not, until the mid-50s, that all pitching coaches used to be catchers. It was an assumption that they could tell what the guy's throwing and so forth. But but only uh, Jim Turner was the first pitcher who became a pitching coach. And he saved two guys that were hard throwers. They were Baltimore, uh, traded from Baltimore with Bob Turley and uh, – and oh, okay, it's a no-hitter in the World Series. Uh, Don Larson. Larson. Those two guys were hard throwers, and the Yankees picked them up in a trade. And Jim Turner was the one who helped them change their pitching uh, position. Instead of a windup, they pitched from the belt. Now that's what you see most pitchers do today. But Jim Turner, a pitching coach, who was a former pitcher, he got Larson and Turley. He he took away all the extraneous motions, pitching from the belt. And they both became, Turley actually became a better pitcher than Larson, but Larson pitched a phenomenal game in 56 in the World Series. So uh, pitching coaches were now dominant in all uh, in all teams, and that introduced the pitching uh, count, uh, the uh, the pitching the pitch count, uh, and some other changes that have happened. That's because pitchers are now coaches in the majors, and they weren't until about the mid 1950s. Who was on your coaching staff for the '55 Dodgers? Everybody knows Alston was the manager, but who were your coaches? Billy Herman. Major leaguer infielder uh, Joe Becker. Joe Becker was a pitching coach. Uh, we had an old gentleman named Jake Pittler, a first base coach. Uh, I think I think that's a, I think that's the coaches I remember anyway. Um, I don't want to get off the phone here without saying what a remarkable honor <laughs> I got a surprise that the street was named. Uh, Erskine Street in Brooklyn. I can't. I, I had six guys on my team made the Hall of Fame. I didn't make the Hall of Fame, but I got the best deal. Well, you know, you're driving down the Bell Parkway, and you know, to be honest, you you just talked. I didn't think it was named for you, and I'm sorry. I apologize. But you're driving down the Bell Parkway. It's right there. Well, I Erskine Street. I didn't know it either until a couple of fans wrote to me and asked me, uh, and I didn't know. I thought it was a coincidence. But a writer in New York uh, was asked a question, was that named after the old pitcher? And he put an article in the paper, which somebody sent to me, and said, yes, uh, that was named after uh, Erskine, uh, Carl Erskine, a pitcher, uh, because there were several Brooklyn Dodger fans on the safety board or whoever is responsible for naming (laughs) the streets. And so, yeah. They said yes. That uh, those Brooklyn fans that had the authority to do it, they, they named it Erskine Street. So 
Right, because if you're driving on the Bell Parkway, I don't know if you do, you pass by the Gil Hodges Memorial Bridge, and a couple of miles later is Erskine Street. Yeah, you know, Jackie's got uh, a bridge or something named after him. Yeah, Interboro. The old Interboro Parkway is now Jackie Robinson Parkway. Yeah, there you go. Well, anyway, oh, that's uh, that that street and my great-granddaughter, those are two two ties that I'm extremely proud of. Most players don't get to uh, to have the honor that I have received from the Dodger fans in Brooklyn. Okay, well, you deserved it. You had a great career for us pitching here in Brooklyn. Well, I tell you what, I thank the good Lord every day that uh, I was able to. I, I married my high school sweetheart, and we've been married 72 years, and I've had and God bless you. Kids, grandkids, great grandkids, and you never lose the tag. I don't care how old you get. You never lose the tag uh, if you've been a major league player. And so I am extremely thankful and grateful that I'm just a skinny kid. You know, I wasn't very big. I I was five uh, ten and a half and weighed uh, pitched at about one sixty five, uh, but I was wiry and durable. Uh, I could pitch uh, extra innings or whatever. And uh, was just uh, blessed in dozens of ways. But one of the big blessings is to have me think about how could it be possible that a skinny kid from Anderson, Indiana, end up playing with some of the greatest team members that ever played baseball. I think we had, I believe there was six Hall of Famers on the Dodgers. Uh, I may be counting Alston as a manager too, but um, but that era uh, quickly. I'll tell you why. I say it's a golden era of baseball. There were three teams in New York City. Uh, we went from day ga- night base day games to night games. We went from trains to planes. We went from radio to TV. It was a, the years of integration uh, with Jackie. And we went from East Coast to West Coast. That all happened in the decade of 47 to 57. And so I claim that as a golden era of baseball. Thanks for the memories. You bet. Thanks for calling me anytime. I appreciate reminiscing with you. That gave me a great feeling. All right. Thank you, Carl. Thank, thank you. you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks again, uh, Carl Erskine. You know, a feel-good interview, I guess, in, in troubling times. Yes, indeed. Just remember, we're coming off the Easter season. Be grateful for everything we have. Our ancestors have gone through much worse, almost all of our ancestors. So let's just, we'll get through all this. Keep going. And hopefully you baseball fans out there, obviously we're not (laughs) listening to baseball right now, but, you know, Carl Erskine brings us back to when there were baseball seasons, when it was inconceivable that it could be canceled. Exactly right. And whole apart. And I want to thank, I mentioned Schwai earlier. He has been wonderful. He's an attorney on the, here at the at Connors & Sullivan. He's been on the radio show before, but he stepped up. He's with the Zoom stuff, getting us on there so that we can see you and talk to you. Um, you can't come to us on in person anymore, but we can talk to you um, through our computers and maybe even some telephones. And also he's been working on the equipment here at the radio so we can stay still reach you through the radio so and we love all of you out there please be careful please stay safe be careful and we'll all get through this
All right. Now, next week, we're going to talk about baseball, and we're going to go to a different subject. Let's stay with baseball. You want to do it one more time? I don't know. A lot of our... A lot of our listeners out there are not big baseball fans, so I don't know if we can do baseball. Well, I don't know. Look, my husband's going through baseball withdrawal. Why don't we just we, the the Carlers? This is a lovely interview this time. And even if you're not a big baseball person, I, I'm not a big baseball person, but I loved this interview. So let's do one more baseball show next week. We'll talk about other stuff. This, uh, what do you say? Well, maybe we do one baseball interview and one religious interview. Oh, that that's good. That's always okay. Good. So. You know, I think we're going to be doing Billy Ripken. Billy Ripken, brother of Cal Ripken, has a book out about baseball statistics. Very good. Which we've had a few few authors talk about baseball statistics. A lot of new statistics floating around. But Billy Ripken's one of those old-fashioned guys who believes in solid statistics, not wins above replacement <laughs> and so forth and so on. So um, and he's got his thoughts on that. And I guess we'll talk something about – we'll probably pick out something about religion. But thank you for listening to – Ask the lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife. Bye-bye, everybody. Heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.